tū tata, he ahi white whita, he ahi tautau, i ngā kaupapa kei te pae kōrero o Party People. Ko mihi ngā rangi a hau, a nau mai ki te ahi kāro o ngā take whaitikanga o te wā. Welcome to Party People, brought to you by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. It's Tuesday the 12th of July and this week uh, Manu Tuarangi has come to the party. He put the me in mainga mainga, he put the bass and ambassador for the Pacific Economic Development and he put the zeal in the New Zealand first. He is the second smartest Shane in New Zealand politics <laughs> after our friend Shane Te Pou, no mai. Uh, tahu te mai Shane Jones, tēnā koe. Uh, kia ora, tēnā no tātou katoa. Pleasure to be here. Uh, most people will know you as a former New Zealand politician. So you began in Labour, uh, then you joined New Zealand First. Uh, you served three terms with the New Zealand Labour Party, and more recently New Zealand First, where you were the Minister for Infrastructure, Forestry and Regional Development. It's great to have you here. What have you been up to? Yes, well, after I uh, salved my wounds <laughs> of being made unemployed by the New Zealand electorate, however, that's the, them's the breaks when you stand in public life, um, no, no, back up in Taitokiro. Actually, recently I went to Raro to celebrate uh, with my wife and Fano her 50th birthday. So after having Fano made a positive dot. contribution to their GDP, almost broke the credit card, <laughs> back to uh, the Takurua, uh, the uh, the cold and anuanu uh, Aotearoa. How are they coping with COVID? They've got a pretty high vaccination rate, eh? Not yeah, no, no, well into the 90s. They are struggling with staff. Mm. A situation where quite a few Kiwi businesses saw their staff as an easy option in the freezing works and other places. But look, the environment is very pleasing. The facilities are still um, much to the standard that Kiwis would expect and enjoy. And they hold New Zealand passports, so it's a great place to go and spend putia. Mm. Yeah. Kia ora, Shane Kia ora. Tupou. I have to call you Shane Tupou now yeah. so everyone knows who I'm talking to. Have you got a good Shane Jones story? I've got lots of good Shane Jones <laughs> stories, but uh, not to, uh, m- most of them will not be discussed on this show, I can assure you of this. <laughs> this is not our first party together. Hey, but I can tell you this, I was on this uh, list selection panel when Shane first stood, and uh, I nominated him on the list, and I think we got you at eight. You were the Prime Minister's parachute at the time, weren't you? <laughs> I think Clark's actually were in opposition, she was the parachute, and I can tell you without a word of a lie, a senior politician who's still around today come up to me afterwards and said, Shane Tupo, we're going to regret this. We're going to regret this. But I, I, I had no regrets. I thought that Shane was a very good minister, particularly uh, under New Zealand First. Uh, you know, I see that the mahi that he did and, uh, and particularly in the infrastructure and, you know, there are there are places that are humming economically, even though we've had COVID times, that would not be at that stage that they are if it wasn't for the, the putia that was spent and justified. I was going to say, the people the won't be regretting yeah. their $3 billion. Mm. Um, let's talk mm. about the PM. She's uh, been visiting Australia. Uh, and commentators note the relationship between Ardern and Albanese feels much more aligned. She's, she's told reporters herself that there's been a significant shift in policy and a return to fairness. So a nod from the Australians that they'll look uh, at the concerns around 501s, uh, some relief flood funding for the New Zealanders living in uh, New South Wales and an easier pathway to citizenship by Anzac Day next week. So Shane Jones, a good outcome for our Australian whanaunga? You know what um, our Prime Minister is addressing is arguably New Zealand's greatest foreign affairs policy fiasco, Mm -hmm. snafu. Uh, Phil Goff, Helen Clark should never have backed down to the Aussies when the Aussies made Kiwis second-class citizens yeah. in Australia. 
back in that period between 1999 and 2002. I can't think of a worse screw-up for a foreign policy snafu amongst two countries that are meant to be brothers in arms. And the fact that the uh, 501 uh, COPA uh, fiasco is now, COPA has now been addressed by the Prime Minister, I mean, that's positive for the people involved. But I do think if you make the pathway for Kiwis to become Aussie citizens, uh, you are arguably opening the door for more people to leave New Zealand and become uh, Aussie citizens. One of the reasons why a lot of Kiwis, in my view, have been a bit reluctant to head off in mass across the Tasman is they know that their rights are very insecure over there. Mm. So the moment that you do improve their rights so that they rival what they enjoy in New Zealand, there's every prospect we'll see a major mm. migration. Shane's talking about uh, Helen Clarker, Phil Goff, but yeah. wasn't John Key involved in that as well? Well, afterwards, he didn't He didn't fix it, and, you know, it's taken 30-odd 30 30 odd years to fix. Shane is right that this is a sort of, this is a, a, a double-edged coin. Uh, it might lead to many of our people going over, over to Australia, and um, but you know what? It is an injustice that did needed to be fixed. Eh, Shane, you know, people couldn't get benefits. People couldn't go to, couldn't get um, student student loans. No matter how long they've been in Australia. And the simple analysis is, is is this: Kiwi Kiwis that live in Australia give a hell of a lot more from the from the Australian economy than what they take. So I think it's only right that the injustice has been fixed. Yeah, it was a situation, Mihi, where you have you pay tax without representation. Yes. Remember the underlying impulse of the Boston Tea Party mm. when the Americans sought for sought uh, revolutionary freedom from the British, same thing. So, no, I, I don't think I should be churlish. Mm. Uh, good on Jacinda for improving those prospects, but it does come with a, uh, a Yeah, what do, you, what do you do to um, combat that situation, you know, the loss of more New Zealanders to Australia where you make the conditions better? Well, the challenge is to improve wages, reduce the cost of living insofar as the cost of houses in New Zealand. And as a country, we have been niggardly and are very parsimonious in respect of the amount of putia the Crown has put into infrastructure. Our population grew remarkably rapidly, a, mi a million people uh, in just over 12, 15 years. And if you track the arrival of those migrants, we did not grow the resilience or the robustness of our infrastructure. And sadly, we're paying for it now. Yeah, Shane is right, but also, you know, it is the lucky land, isn't it, Shane, where basically uh, they're, they're, you know, their, their mines are in the middle of nowhere. They don't have, often don't have to dig, so they've got that that supports the economy. <laughs> but I think there's two things that underpin uh, the difference between Australia and New Zealand, and one of them is wages, and they have a uh, they have a fair pay agreements, and they always have uh, for the last 30, 40 years in Australia, and they have a very good superannuation program. I think it's gone up to 12%. And here's the good thing about the Australians, they don't stuff around with their superannuation program, it underpins their economy. And they use that, as as they do other mechanisms, to invest in their infrastructure. And Shane is right, we've been very poor uh, in generational support in terms of our infrastructure. Yeah, we've got a um, crisis in the cost of living here at mm. the moment, and you talk about the rise, rising... Um, you know, raising the income and things like that. But one thing that uh, they uh, that the government is looking at is the supermarket, you know, uh, yeah, duopoly. Yeah. And so David Clark has announced the supermarket watchdog and a code <coughs> of conduct. Do you think it's enough? Well, I took the cudgels yes. up in 2014. Yes. It was actually after John Key went to Australia 
and the Australian supermarkets had decided to delist Kiwi products. And a number of Kiwis came to see me about this, so I went into Parliament at great risk, I might say, because some of the most well-heeled Kiwis are owners of supermarkets. Mm. And anyhow, took on the kaupapa. Uh, the Tories at that time weren't interested. And good on David Clark for working with Catherine Rich, a former MP, the advocate for the Grocery Council. Uh, bear in mind that the supermarkets are 50% owned by Woolworths, and that's Countdown, and the rest are a collective independent owners of supermarkets. And to the extent that a new grocery regulator can bring fairness, it's going to depend whether or not the rules are enforceable. Mm. If the rules, Mihi, are enforceable and you can go to the High Court and you can get an injunction or you can force uh, people responsible for egregious behaviour to suffer a financial penalty, then you'll get the supermarkets have to change the, their ways. Ha, yeah. Shane Tipo, have you seen the finer details on that? Is that I've going to be yeah. able to happen? I've, I've seen some some of the details and, and some of it hasn't been released yet. I think it is a step in the right direction. Remember, every year they have to, uh, they have to, there's a level of transparency and, you know, which is quite a big big thing to ask of a private organisation mm. and then of course they can be fined uh, what will have to happen is they will have to choose a real mongrel eh, in terms of uh, who, who who will adjudicate that um, and also just today we've seen many of the uh, the supermarkets um, give away or no, move towards allowing others to build an, an, on their on their land because you know these supermarkets are not just about kai they're about property and property mm. ownership so mm. that's been loosened a bit mm. here's the thing though this this will not deal with the immediate crisis that we have in terms of cost of living yes no it's it not will take a good year or so to kick in um will, will there be any kickback from australia with us um you know toughening up no, 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 I don't think there will be at all. They themselves have a problem. Look, in New Zealand, we've got monopolies, okay? Supermarkets are a type of monopoly. Now, you can get technical, and two monopolies equal yeah. a duopoly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then we have similar situations with the cost of fuel, the cost of building pro uh, products, our banking system, and the New Zealand economy is a host of pillars that are very hard to regulate. And until the cost of doing business with these uh, monumental pillars, otherwise known as monopolies, is tamed, we're always going to be a high-cost economy. Yeah, you, you wanted a Fonterra-style regulation back in the, in the day. Looking at what we have got and what David Clark has announced, what would you like to concentrate on in terms of forcing a bit? Well, I think if you want to encourage competition, you've got to require the existing supermarkets to provide access to the wholesale yes. chain. Now, the existing supermarkets and other little grocery stores, they all have to buy their products mm. from a certain source, and that's a wholesale market. And if it's dominated by the people who currently uh, have inordinate influence in that chain of uh, economic activity, then you're going to stop uh, economic uh, competition. But the sense that I have is that David Parker, uh, sorry, David Carter, uh, no, not David, Clark. Clark. David Clark, I'm running out of Davids. Yeah. Other than my old mate, uh, David Shearer, who is imminently more easy to deal with than David Cunliffe, but that aside. Uh, I think uh, Dr. Clark, uh, he has a good understanding. Mm. They just need to show pace. They need to show will. 
and be prepared to stand up because we were all let down by the Commerce Commission. Yep. Mm. I mean, I did get in problem. I did get in the, in the crap by calling the Commerce Commission a gummy old you, mm. but that's basically that's what it was. Uh, it, it, the nature of their contribution. So I'm glad that the government has said to the Commerce Commission, but, not good enough. But also, but, Shane, I think that the government wasted too much time waiting for the outcome. I think they should have pushed it along. And uh, you, you've alluded to it, and I think it's actually a very salient point. What they have failed to do in terms of these reforms is to ensure that. To, to the degree I think they'd be able to do it is the control of those wholesale and the supply chains because yeah. that where the real that's where the real issue lies because fundamentally the fundamentally the consumer and the supplier are getting screwed. We've been talking about Māori supermarket chain mm. for a long time. Māori, you know, if you look at the economy now, well, honey and meat and dairy and the rest of it, is, does this make it easier for a third player? Well, I think I, I would say to any um, element in Te Ao Māori, Team up with someone who already has um, skin in the game. Arguably one of the best supermarket and most successful supermarket owners of New Zealand is um, Jason Witahira. He owns the uh, Albany supermarket, which downtown, is a major investment. Too. A major, mm. And so I would encourage any uh, group with, from within Māori to hook up someone like him. But look, I think this is going to be good for the owners of meat, the owners of milk, the owners of fish, and let's face it, Māoridom have substantial exposure to those food commodities and if they can get a wee bit more out of the supermarkets, uh, that's car pie, but the supermarkets are going to have to uh, yield some of their profit margin. Mm. Uh, let's go to the Pacific Island Forum. Mm. Uh, the 51st Pacific Islands Forum has kicked off, but Kiribati has withdrawn, fo- followed by the Cook Islands PM and the Marshall Islands President. What's going on What's going on in the, in, in the situation there, Shane? Well, I think I think you know you've got a country like Kiribati that I learned just today of a population of 110. You know they they got a, a, a street, yeah, 110,000. Sorry, they got a strategic sort of bit of land there and and uh, and where they're at. So I think they're. They're holding off. They're going to see if they can get a better deal out of the Chinese or, or, or out of New Zealand and Australia. And to a certain degree, you can't blame them. You know, there there are there, there are people that by and large uh, live in a subsistence economy. And I think that many of our chickens have come home to roost. Remember, and I've, I've run this line for the last three or four weeks, in many regards, we're the bad bad actor in a lot of this. We're, we were the colonists and still are. And, um, and I think it's just the Pacific um, playing their cards strateg- strategically and smartly. And at the end of the day, they have a responsibility primarily to their own people. Mm. Shane, you were the ambassador mm. to the Pacific Economic Deve- uh, of Pacific Economic Development. Mm-hmm. Tell us what your read is. You've got, you've got mm. a better read than myself. Well, the forum is chaired this year by Frank Bounty Marama, and it represents uh, a redemption for Frank. Mm. Uh, Frank, you may recall, wanted New Zealand and Australia kicked out of the forum. And uh, he resented the forum because the forum in 2009, when John Key was the Prime Minister, initiated by Helen Clark, uh, expelled Fiji from the forum because they had suspended democracy in Fiji. Now, we can argue whether or not New Zealand overplayed their hand there, but the reality is he's now back in the fold. I think he'll be extraordinarily disappointed that under his chairmanship there's been this fracturing. Mm. Why is Kiribati stepping away? I think Kiribati is exercising their influence 
and they're participating now in a bidding war. Mm. They know that America is trying to re-engage. They know that Australia is the proxy for America uh, in the uh, Pacific, and they know that New Zealand, our specialty is soft diplomacy. We don't have the checkbook. But to do soft diplomacy, Mihi, you have to be on the road all the time. You have to have your dance card full, and you have to be continually boosting equity through trust and ongoing interaction. And we've dropped the ball in that regard. Mm. I think Kiribati are hoping that by remaining aloof, they will attract more international favour. They may um, follow through on their promise to get closer to China. Uh, that would be a very treacherous step if it has the effect of um, uh, causing consternation with the Americans who have a treaty with the Kiribati. When Kiribati became independent, Mihi, there was an American senator, a Republican, I forget the chap's name, who held out for many years because he feared that America's sphere of influence would be compromised if Kiribati became independent. So they signed a treaty enabling uh, America to influence Kiribati's behavior if the military or security dimensions of the United States of America were compromised by other relationship that Kiribati might uh, make. So watch this space. I see lots of white water in this regard. We've been told this is all about security. Have mm. we just been too late to the... Ta- have we taken our eyes off the ball? Well, uh, you know, the, Shane is right. There's very little we, we can do in our own right. I think Australia's been very, a very poor player and, and quite aggressive to the Pacific, as they have New Zealand under Dutton and, and Morrison and, and, and the Conservative Prime Ministers before him. I think there there is some hope. You've got a greater sort of political sync between Australia and New Zealand, Wong and Mahuta. And so I think they'll have to play this out a bit. Uh, Ardern, who has an international pop- popularity and also is up in the Pacific. Um, so I, I think I think that we're in a better position than we were a few weeks ago. But Shane's quite right. There's a lot of white water to sort of go. And, you know, um, the, the COVID has caused particularly economic pain to to some of the smaller islands because of of the of tourism just quickly i mean the real danger mihi the real danger Mm. is that it has undermined their fiscal stability Mm. and then when you're a small government and you're very isolated and your sources of income have been disrupted through covid and other logistical dramas you've got to look somewhere to keep fiscally robust and fiscally solvent and until such time, New Zealand can help resolve some of the fiscal pressures on these small nation states. They're going to cast their net wherever they think and there is some lucrative fish. And remember, for many of our island sisters and brothers, one of their main sources of income is actually remittance. Mm. So not only are their economies hurting, but you know, if, if they've got a New Zealand whānau, Australian or American whānau, for that matter, who aren't able to sort of send koha, it causes real, di- uh, real problems. Mm. You mentioned fish but mm. you just mentioned it and mm. the thing. But is it, yeah. a, is it about resources? Is it about fish more than security? Oh, look, uh, one of the greatest resources in the El Dorado, which is 10 degrees above and 10 degrees mm. below the equator, is the fisheries pelagic resource. It is the largest resource, uh, fisheries resource in the world, wild fishery. And it's highly sought after. Uh, it is um, poorly policed, certainly in what's the, called the high seas. Those are the, that refers to that part of the Pacific Ocean which is not within an economic zone of the island nation states. So the fisheries resource is very lucrative. It can be better managed. And until such time, uh, we get more stability up there and less geopolitical pro- posturing. We're going to see a lot of diversionary politics from the islands.
Yeah, for many for, for many of the countries, the greatest political leverage they have are their fishing territories and the economic zones. Mm. We're going to move on to something quite different. Te Matatini. It was Tuariki Delamere who first got the million dollars mm. uh, as Associate Minister of Finance back in 1996. It's increased by about another million over 20 years. Uh, the Symphony Orchestra received nearly 20 million. The Royal New Zealand Ballet receives 8 million and Te Matatini 2.9. So when you look at the audiences reached for each of these three, Te Matatini leaves the others in the dust. It, but but it's only giving about 1.3, I think it's $1.30 per audience view or something like that. You know, what, what's going on? This is clearly inequity. It is inequity. I do think we should have a national ballet. I do think we should have a uh, national symphony orchestra. But I also think that Matatini ought to be valued. It ought to have more putia put, put into it. Uh, the reality is that um, our indigenous culture is a huge selling point internationally. And, you know, I, perhaps what we could do something like um, fund uh, Matatini, uh, the, the, the winning organisation, uh, the winning rupu uh, at, at, at the sort of figures that the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra um, has in, and have them travel internationally. So I think that, you know, there's an economic advantage in terms of in terms of supporting Matatini. You've been in government. Um, almost every Māori politician's aligned to some winning kapaka group. You know, why does it not, why does it continue to be so poorly supported? Just hasn't been prioritised. Mm. I think one of the most important ways to conceive uh, te Matatini is that it's structured, it requires commitment, and there's an obligation made, uh, like most of our listeners of uh, Māori descent who have had kids in kapahaka, it's not a walk in the park. Aye. There's a substantial amount of... Uh, in fact, when some of my kids were really little, we used to go to Manuariki, you may recall, that was uh, Mr Phillips's um, centre near Taumarunui. Well, driving a van full of kids all the way from Auckland up to the chilly Taumarunui was not for the faint-hearted. Especially that last 40 Pardon? minutes. Especially that last 40 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, look, I, I think if you conceive of it in that regard that it, it, you don't get there because it's um, cool to twirl a poi. You get there because you make a deep commitment. Is it cultural elitism? I think part of it is. And, you know, an, an extra $6 million, so you have a national icon that, again, I think, you know, can travel the Mutu, travel, travel the world. $7 or $8 million, literally, that's a, that's a drop in the bucket. Do you, th do you think that things might change a wee bit? I noticed the other day um, there was a story around Māori kaiafina i te reo, their salary going from 21 bucks an hour to 42 or something. You know, yeah, because, I saw that, yeah. Do you think this might happen with kapahaka? You know, I think it's a... Uh, I was thinking about this the other day when some of the judges came to our marae and we had a church service and we welcomed uh, Judge Taumonu, who I must say is a very impressive individual. Mm. Probably not quite as impressive as his sister, but that aside... Um, and it seemed to me, Almorai is reasonably well served when certain whānau were there. But I think that the way to expand kapahaka is for each hapu and each marae through that treaty settlement process to actually get kaiāpuna, to go from marae to marae, from school to school, and to ensure that each of those locations are able to conduct ceremony and process and procedure by teaching specific people who then can radiate their influence. And I think kapahaka is a good platform for doing that. It is a big commitment, and a lot of kapahaka people, I find, are absolutely committed to kapahaka. 
they're not interested in uh, many other things, and that's how time-consuming and engrossing kapahaka is. We just want to talk about the Māori Party AGM before we leave. Mm. Um, they had a stunning lineup. Very yeah. young. Rob Ruha, Pani Newton, Julia Whaipoti, uh, Safari Hines, the Hori, all movers and mm. shakers in Te Ao Māori. Is that the future? I mean, they got, are they in the run-in into the elections, are they looking good now? Well, I think they're looking okay. Um, the problem they've got is they haven't got any runs on the board, you know, and there's still that hangover in terms of their their, their relationship with the National Party. Um, and, I, I, you know, um, their current leadership seems sometimes a little bit flashy, a little bit gimmicky, but and, and, and have no runs on the board. Very interesting, though, that the president of the Labour, uh, the president of the Māori Party, uh, recently re- retook his role, and that was John Tamahiri. And so I thought that was a bit unusual. If you were in fact looking at a generational shift, they have kind of got runs on the boards because mm. they've got two uh, two seats. They've got two mm. MPs, but. Um, you know, do, do most political parties forget the fact that Māori are, uh, on average, 25 years old? Are they looking in the right direction for votes? Look, I, I could easily sit here and take pot shots at the Māori Party, but I've sort of moved beyond that. I welcome anyone who's willing to put their life on hold and have a crack seriously in public life. The uh, Māori Party, in my view, are going to fight like cats and dogs to win some of the Māori seats. I suspect they'll line up um, Mecca, uh, as they tried to line up Parikura in the past. And uh, if they want to have influence, they need to win seats. I do not imagine Willie or the Labour Party will willingly yield those seats unless they feel the only way they can govern at the end of next year is by conceding um, some space to the Māori Party, given this generation of Māori Party are never going to share power with is that, is that your, um, what were your eyes on, uh, no. Uh, no, no, I'm not saying that Mecca would lose, but if I was a, a, a strategist mm. for the Māori Party, I would, mm. I'd, I'd go through all the polling data, and Shane Tepo knows this because yeah. he was an activist in the Labour Party when he was young. Mm. You've got to work out where your message will radiate the, because they're never going to get there with the 5%. That's more the New Zealand first recipe. They need to win seats. And they'll try, I'm sure, in Tamaki Makoto. Yeah. Uh, who knows what? They'd be uh, pretty safe in Waiariki, though, pardon? wouldn't they? Pretty safe. I know they'll, they'll hold. They'll hold Waiariki. Yeah, what about that one? So Tibingaru is 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 vulnerable uh, in terms of labour, and and if you just have a look at the, at the last D nines, which is the co, um, co okay, it, it was the voting at uh, Tamaki Makoto, and um, I'm not going to announce it now, but I think there's going to be some very interesting movements in Tamaki Makoto. Go on. Well. Okay then, I won't. Well, because it's 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 out there for everyone, isn't yes. it? And, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's and, on the uh, block. Mr. Henare is not keen to be a constituent MP. He wants mm. to go on the list, so they'll have to get a very good candidate to go up against the Māori Party. Are you hearing this on the Pai up north? Uh, well, I think. Look, a lot of us, and I had a big mm. role in putting bringing Calvin into politics, mm. but a lot of us are, are suspicious or are suspecting that Calvin may want to move on. So there'll be an open slather uh, in the north. But I can announce, Matua Shane Jones is not going to stand in the Taitokuro seat. So I'm not saying it for those selfish reasons. Hearing it first here, everybody, on the party people, all this change. So we're looking at um, the north and we're looking at Tamaki Makoto and we're looking at Te Tai Hauauru. Mm. Um, what's, what are we looking forward to this week in politics? Shane. Well, look, the Prime Minister, I think, had a very good run internationally. 
the EU deal, the extension of the visas, the Australian deal, but she's got to come home and she's got to confront the only issue that most Kiwis are, uh, are burdened with, and that's the and that's rising costs. So, you know, great stuff overseas, but you've got to come and face your own people, and that's the issue that Prime Minister Ardern and her cabinet have to confront. Do you agree? I think it was unwise of Christopher Luxon to give that speech in London, which could yes. be construed as dissing his own country. Uh, keep your politics of a domestic nature. Can you nature just elaborate for the audience? Pardon? Elaborate for the audience. Uh, Christopher Luxon gave a speech in London where he basically said that New Zealand had um, got COVID wrong and that New Zealand visitors, bus, businesses were soft. You don't talk like that. Right. When you go overseas, you talk about the finer virtues and finer sentiments of your nation. So that just shows as an experience. The Prime Minister is going to have to work very hard with Grant Robertson to get back the territory that the polls show that... Uh, that they're seeding and losing, but there's great uh, virtue associated with incumbencies. Why is it that as an opposition leader you're meant to not really diss your country? Oh, because it, it's it's a protocol, and uh, and some of the stuff that he was saying sort of wasn't actually true and accurate, and it was the clumsiness of it, and, you know, the guy's a week later, he's still mm. trying to defend that position, and three weeks out from his abortion comments, he's still trying to defend those comments. This guy lacks agility, um, and, uh, and, you know, I think he's got some own problems. In, oh, it's pretty simple. You go overseas and you're a key yeah. aspirant to be the Prime Minister, you stick up for your country. You don't go over there and take cheap pot shots against your country and the people who are currently but, running But there's nothing stopping you. Yeah, cool. That's party people for this week. You can watch us on RNZ's YouTube account. Kei ngā ahikā o te motu, kei konei tuki anō ai te papa kia tuki i te ahipū.